Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey and together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. For episode 20 of the Nerd Lab, I have had the honor to interview Mike Selinker, a legend in the game design industry. He is the brain behind many of the games that inspired me to start my quest as a game designer. Um, he designed Pathfinder Adventure Card Game, Apocrypha and Betrayal at House on the Hill, just to mention a few. He spent eight years of his life uh, designing the first adventure card game. And today he's going to share incredible insights into this process with all of us. It was a blast for me to talk to Mike and we even touched Maslow's hierarchy of needs and um, we talked about self-confidence and the mindset you need to have as a game designer. I hope you will enjoy the show and um, yeah, let's get right into it. And now for you, the main quest. Today I have a very special episode for you. In today's episode we have a guest who inspired me significantly to start my own journey or my own quest as a game designer. He is um, a legend in the gaming industry. He worked for Withers of the Coast um, as a creative director and game inventor. Um, and is now the president of Lone Shark Games. He designed um, or co-designed incredible games such as Pathfinder Card Game, Betrayal at the House on the Hill, uh, Apocrypha and um, Dungeons and Dragons 3rd Edition and many more. But he's not only famous for his role-playing and adventure games, he's also famous for puzzle designs that have been published all over the place, including the New York Times. But the very, very best thing about him is Mike is not only an incredible game designer, he is also more than willing to share his wisdom with all of us. He has done uh, so by publishing the book um, Cobalt Guide to Board Game Design, and he is here today to share his knowledge with all of us. I am incredibly proud to welcome Mike Selinker to the show today. Welcome, Hello. Mike. It is an honor to have you uh, on the it's show. An honor to, it's an honor to cross the uh, Atlantic this way. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm recording from Germany, and um, you are in the USA. Where exactly are you located? I'm in Seattle, Washington, up about as far away as I can get from you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's lunchtime for you right now, and in the yes. evening for me. So I hope you do not have to to skip your lunch for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I got up like an hour ago. So okay. uh, hey. Uh, Quick tip to young game designers out there. Getting up at 11.30 in the morning is great. <laughs> so um, I have, uh, I'm have i a father of three uh, very young children, so I have yeah, to get up a little earlier no, than you. No, no experience whatsoever with that, I imagine. <laughs> no, I don't have that experience right now. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. That was uh, quite the introduction. I very much appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Today we want to talk a little bit about um, about your journey as a game designer and um, want to learn from your successes and maybe also from your failures. Yeah, I like those a lot. Um, we uh, we uh, in my company uh, we we focus just as much on on the things that have gone wrong as the things that have gone right. And uh, I think uh, having a uh, having a belief that you know you are not the sum of your failures is a uh, uh, a strong thing to have when you're a game designer, right? I mean, you have to acknowledge your successes, learn from your failures, and move on. So, yeah, we can talk about all that. Yeah, I, I, I love that um, Yeah, North American mentality regarding the failure culture because we in Germany have a little bit of a different one. Yeah, I wouldn't say – yeah, I mean, like, there's a lot of stereotypes like that. I mean, uh, I would say that I certainly know many people who, um, who, who are very hard on themselves, uh, even over here. And so, you know, the, the myth of the bootstrapping American who just, uh, just picks them up and, and turns right around and gets right off the ground. Well, that's, you know, it is still a myth, but it is, uh, certainly something that, you know, I, I try to instill in people is that, um, you know, there are, there are certainly mistakes and you should try to avoid them. But, uh, 
but they're not they're not uh, life defining. So yeah, this is also um, something we do on the podcast here. Um, in the beginning, I promised my audience that I will share with them uh, my process of designing an adventure card game, and um, sure. I also um, already made some some mistakes, and I shared those mistakes as well. Um, and I think I hope that my audience can 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 learn from my failures and um, yeah does not do the same mistakes. Excellent. All right. So where do you want to start? So um, since I designed an adventure card game myself, I'm especially interested in your experience in this genre. But before we dive into this uh, main topic, we would like to learn a little bit more about you, Mike. Could you please um, introduce yourself um, and tell us how your journey as a game designer began? Sure. Uh, well, I started. Uh, when I was uh, very young, I happened to have very supportive parents, which is a, a very strong thing to have when you're uh, starting out. And uh, I I uh, just sort of, I got a copy of the Dungeons and Dragons blue box and said, I can do this. And uh, and so I tried. Um, same with, uh, with Games Magazine and the New York Times crossword puzzle. I just tried. And... Uh, amazingly, the stuff I did was good enough that they published it before I was old enough to realize that that wasn't exactly how things got done. <laughs> so how old were you? I was 13. Oh, that's very young. Yeah, I was just like, I, I can do this. I, I, I see no reason why. Uh, yeah, there was a, there was some crazy nonsense talk of, you know, like once I got my third or fourth thing published, I was like, I told my mom, I could drop out of high school and do this for a living. And my mom was like, there is no chance of that. There is no way you're doing that. Um, but, uh, but, uh, thankfully I didn't listen to myself, but, uh, but yeah, I, I just, I think there's lots of equivalents of that now. I mean, I think that, uh, You know, we didn't have, when I was a kid, we didn't have, uh, the ability to just post things on the internet. We didn't have all these places that, uh, could make games, you know, the Game Crafter and, and forums and things like that. And, and so the equivalent of what I did as a kid was, you know, I, I basically identified the people who were publishing games and figured out that they probably needed stuff and figured out what they needed and sent it to them. And so, um, you know, cause everybody is hungry for content, especially new voices. And so that still exists. I mean, that, that is all over the place in, in every field. Um, and so, so I think there's a value to having just a certain confidence that the worst thing that can happen to you is rejection and rejection doesn't, really hurt that much right like i mean you in in all of the great concerns in the world you know rejection from a publisher uh is not on maslow's hierarchy of needs <laughs> no it, it it isn't but sometimes if you if you're just starting out um it feels like it is on the top of the um the maslow's yeah, it does, pyramid. but it, but, it, but it, it's a very privileged state right i mean that's the that's the thing to understand is it's a very privileged state to be able to say all of my other needs are taken care of in my life. But the one thing I can't handle is someone I've never met doesn't like something I did. Right. I mean, that, that, that is such a, it's, it's, it's very, it's hard to think of it this way because it sounds crushing, but it's, it's very egotistical to look at, to look at the world that way when the world is full of people who have much more severe problems than that. And so, you know, while you have the strength, while you have the ability to, to pull yourself out and, and do, do things that make you feel good as a person, don't let other people's opinions define you in any moment because you've already gotten past the hardest part, which is finding the time and finding the ability to do something good. Right. That thing doesn't exist for lots and lots of people. Mm. And so, so that's why, that's how I do it. I mean, I, I try to figure out like, what can I do that is, uh, surprising and innovative and, and fun, uh, at every, every day, um, you know, or educational or whatever it is I'm trying to do. And, uh, and I've been doing that since I was really young, you know, just, just sort of wake up and, and come up with something that may or may not be good, but try it out. And then the, then I just send it, you know, I, I try to figure out where it needs to go. And if it's just 
randomly to the internet, that's totally fine. In fact, that's generally how I tell people to approach things is if you don't have a place for something to go, give it to everybody for free. Because eventually people are going to come to you and they're going to want to pay you for it. And so you might as well just, just throw the stuff out there and see if people like it. Yeah, that's great advice, Mike. Thank you for that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm arguing to be clear for, for, um, you know, uh, something that doesn't fit in the value economy. And so, you know, I don't want to say that people should be comfortable working for free. Don't take the advice, you know, don't, don't, don't do things when people say in lieu of paying you, I'm giving you exposure. That's yes. not okay. Right. What I mean is you have complete control of your intellectual property and there's nothing that stops you from giving it to the largest audience possible. Yeah, but I think you have been you have been very far ahead of the curve by doing this um, at the age of 13 and yeah. uh, by figuring out um, the exact right people to send your stuff to that may have the need for for the content that you have created when i was 13 uh, um, i probably created uh, stuff myself as well but it was were more like a dnd adventures for my group as a as a dungeon master and i didn't didn't send any of it to to a publisher for example so i, I think you have been very far ahead of the of the curve in the age of 13 and you probably still are nowadays i think so i mean i think there's some value to just believing that what you have written down is something that people would enjoy. And so you have to get to there first. I mean, if you don't feel that way, there's a reasonable chance that you're right. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's not, that's, that's not, that's worth knowing, right? I mean, like if, if what you're producing isn't up to your level of quality and doesn't feel right, then you have to keep working on it. Um, but if what you're producing is, is great, then there shouldn't be any impediment. I mean, you should, Just say, I want to put this out there and I think people are going to find you. Um, I do have now have, um, after spending some time working for Wizards of the Coast, I do now have my own company and that allows me a great deal of freedom to publish whatever I want. And so, uh, there's definitely a point where I got to where not only did I get the ability to publish what I wanted to publish, but I needed other people to do it. So now I've surrounded myself with, you know, uh, seven or eight game designers that work for my company that make the games that we make. And that, that produces a whole different dynamic. It, it simultaneously creates much better games than I would be able to create on my own and creates a permanent necessity for us to continue to make very good games because otherwise everybody's out of work. Of course. And so, I mean, the, the level of pressure goes through the roof when, you know, your success is everybody's paycheck. And so, uh, so that's, that's a state that, you know, I, I don't expect a lot of your listeners will, uh, have to get to. And, and I hope, you know, if, if that's a goal that, that may not want to be your goal, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the middle part where you just get to write the games that you want to make and get them published. That's a, that's a pretty good place to be. Yeah. But I'm sure a lot of people or a lot of uh, listeners from this show also have this as a dream become to, to, to found their own uh, publishing company um, and create their own games with a, with an entire team. So how was the transition for you from being um, a writer and uh, an employee at with of the coast um, to being a, um, yeah, a boss and having your own company? Well, I was a boss at Wizards of the Coast, and uh, I didn't like it. Um, like uh, there, there was some value. Uh, it was it was great to be at Wizards. I got all of the uh, the the best uh, intellectual properties to play with, and I, I did some really good stuff, and I'm very proud of it all. Um, but it was too big. It was it was too much for me to absorb on a daily basis, and uh, a lot of the things I wanted to do weren't getting done and, and I was spending way too much of my time dealing with things that, that weren't uh, on my list of things that I wanted to do. Um, so founding my own company uh, was, was weird uh, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, back in the day we didn't have Kickstarter, so we had to make, uh, we had to make everything count. Um, we couldn't produce anything without being sure that it was going to have some uh, positive outcome. But uh, but now I think it's a little different. Now I think starting the company is the easy part. Uh, that was a lot harder then. 
But now I think it's very easy to get yourself into a situation where you have a company and you have a game that you are required to make and then the hard part begins, right? The Now the ability to get funding is, well, it's certainly not easy. Um, it's, uh, it's now a lot easier through, through crowdfunding efforts and through the support structure that exists on BoardGameGeek and, and all those things. Um, but you can get yourself into situations where you don't know how to do everything you're supposed to do. And that is much harder, uh, than it used to be. Um, now we have the ability to call up printers ourselves and, and say, I want to, I want a thing that I want to make and they will make it but not always the way you want. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I just think it's, um, it's a very different world where a lot of people who decide they want to be game designers don't realize they've decided they want to be game publishers. And that means a very different set of skills have to be generated, uh, that there really isn't any way to get, uh, unless you attach yourself to really good people. Yes, um, I have a I have talked to to Richard Garfield, um, it in, and about this in the same topic. And his advice was to to go the publisher route. Still, um, it, it is easier nowadays to to do the self publishing, but his advice was to to go the publisher route uh, because he said they offer a new perspective that you ca- that you do not get when you when you publish everything on your on your own and it pretty much goes into the same direction what you what you said um, that you need a good team that can bring the the new perspective so if you are yeah. only one two or maybe three p- people that may not be enough to 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 create a game and publish it by yourself so this was what what his advice was and um yeah is this the same would you would you say that this is true or would you would you see it in another perspective well i mean richard richard and i uh have been working together now for 25 years so it's not surprising that we have some similar opinions but uh richard's position is a little bit different than mine richard uh definitely wanted nothing to do with the business side of of making games And was very clear about that. I mean, he, he, he created the environment that, that I was very happy to enter, which was a, an R&D department that was pretty much immune to the daily pressures of a, uh, you know, of, of running a game company. Um, we, you know, we had our own issues. We had, you know, uh, we, but, but that didn't mean that, you know, we had to deal with profit and loss in the same way as other people in the company. And he was very much a champion of that approach. You know, let the, let the game designers design games. Don't, don't trouble them with other things. I, I sort of ended up in the middle. I think that there's, I think that there's a lot to learn about why games are successful. And, and you can only really get that by being in the trenches and, and knowing how the uh, machinery of games functions and understanding what it's like to, to be out among people and to, to, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't trust a politician who, uh, doesn't know what milk costs. You know, I think there's value to knowing, knowing what, what things cost. And so, and, and, but that doesn't mean you should do it by yourself. Like there are better people than you at making these decisions. And so sharing that load, I think is great. And for me, I found the, you know, the ideal team size for me is about, is about a dozen people. Um, that, that, you know, when we, I was at Wizards, I had something like, I don't know, 23 employees. And that was, that was more than I could really handle at any given time. And eventually I just said, I don't want to do this anymore. And then I, you know, then I went down to like, you know, a couple people and that was also not right. And it took getting back up to about when we had like six or seven when I was like, okay, this is a functioning team. This team can actually do stuff. And now we're, now we're a little bigger than that. But I, I, I mean, there's, for me, teamwork is the, is the heart of what makes good stuff happen. I mean, there's, there's always going to be somebody who walks in the door and says, I think I know what we're doing for the next year, but that's really a minor portion of what actually has to be done. And so I, I definitely feel there's value to surrounding yourself with really good people. I totally agree with you. And, um, 
I have uh, founded businesses before with four, five uh, people, and I think this was a great, great size. But now when I started my career as a game designer, I'm pretty much on my own. Um, so what would you would be your advice for for someone just starting out um, having a, an idea um, to 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 gather gather a team to find the right people to do the project with him together oh yeah that's i mean that's uh a lot of it depends on proximity and time right i mean like uh, there's nothing that that's more valuable than face-to-face -face time with other people but in every environment there's a There's a group of people who gather around a game store or something like that. And, and, and I think the, the real key though is to link up with other people who do the kind of thing that you do, you know, to directly reach them, uh, even through the internet and through, um, game conventions and stuff like that. I mean, the, there's no competition in the game industry amongst games designers that I, that I know about. Right. I mean, we're, we're all here for each other. And so, um, I think the, the key is to be in the community and to, to, uh, as I said, I mean, the, the most important thing is to just get something out, you know, even if it is something you've just made by yourself. Right. I mean, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean it's going to be bad. But eventually, you're going to need other people to look at it and make it better, um, whether that's through playtesting, uh, through, through um, you know, uh, development, through, uh, you know, getting, getting a publisher on board, getting any number of artists. You know, eventually it's going to be necessary to bring other people in unless you can do all of that yourself. There are very few people who can. Of course they can't. <laughs> Yeah, no, and, and I, I don't know why anybody believes that should be the standard, right? I mean, like, you know, uh, the, the great music is provided by bands, not singers, right? And so, um, I think there's, there's a step where you just have to sort of plunge yourself into the local community. And local is a funny word. Like, in Germany, there, there are hundreds of game designers. And so, It's very important to say, I made this, I like it, it's not where I want it to be. Can people take a look at it and tell me how it would be better? And eventually that process leads to collaboration. Thank you very much. Maybe we we can go a little bit deeper into the adventure card games now. Yes, let's. Um, so as far as I know, you started your career in the area of RPGs and puzzles. So yes. Could you please describe what was driving you to add adventure card games to your portfolio? So why did you decide to make an adventure card game? Well, I mean, obviously we didn't have that phrase yet, so no. I had to make that <laughs> phrase up, obviously. But uh, actually, I didn't. Uh, a guy named Wes Schneider did. Um, but uh, uh, I think it was sort of just a general sense that I didn't have enough time to play RPGs anymore. And I, I didn't want to go through the process of getting a large group together on a regular basis all the time, do all the preparation and, you know, make it, uh, I'll, I'll do all the effort to make an, a true RPG happen every time. And so my solution to that was to dedicate the next you know, eight years of my life to solving that problem, uh, which doesn't seem very bright. And I wouldn't recommend that. But um, but basically the the approach was I need something that people can get their brain around that isn't as challenging as an RPG and isn't as uh, intimidating to start as an RPG, but still gets that feeling that you get of being part of a, a group. And so... Uh, that took some effort. Uh, I got a great team together. Um, I got uh, Chad Brown and Gabby Weidling uh, to start out, and then it got a lot bigger from there. And uh, you know, made a prototype uh, that, that sort of worked, and uh, uh, we beat on that for a while. And um, a lot of it was was uh, uh, involved in my conversations with a fellow named Ryan Sand that we that we worked together on it. And then uh, we took it to the Paizo folks and made the Pathfinder Adventure card game. And that that was a transitional element. I mean, it kind of had made this kind of game before, um, having worked on Betrayal at House on the Hill, but not in the sense of the true 
communality and long-term nature of it. I, I think that that was the big, the big change. And, uh, I don't think anybody'd seen that before. And so what we created was pretty strong right out of the gate and inspired a lot of people, I think. Yes. And inspired me, for example, to start with my um, adventure card game. And, um, one thing I struggle sometimes with is, um, finding the right balance. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, there are two things I really like about RPGs. Um, on one hand, um, the, Challenges that are posed to players can be very different from game to game, depending on the adventure you're playing, depending on the dungeon master you have. Um, you can create combat scenarios, social combat, or puzzles in an RPG. Um, on the other hand, the players are also extremely free in their decision, um, so they can decide how they want to solve these challenges that the game presents to them. In Board games and card games, there are always yeah, much stricter rules um, how players can solve certain situations. And also the challenges the games present are much more, yeah, let's say, it linear. Uh, and I'm sure there must be stricter rules because there typically is no dungeon master in a, in a card or board game. But I still find it very challenging to find the right balance between uh, giving the players the freedom of an RPG in their character behavior and the restrictions of a typical board game. Um, what is your take on finding that right balance between freedom and strict rules? Push it all as far as you possibly can. To into the, which to direction? The point, in, in, the, in the freedom direction, right? I mean, you want the widest, you want a system that is tight and functions and runs itself. I mean, that's crucial. If it doesn't run itself, it's a real problem. But it needs to be able to do as many possible things as it can. And that's, that's where Apocrypha came in, right? I mean, Apocrypha for us was, can we, can we make a thing that can do everything? Uh, can we make it so that it runs both as a, a, a game against the game and as an RPG? Can we make it so that it has, uh, long-term play and short-term play? Can we make it, you know, can we have wildly different things from chapter to chapter happen in the game? And, uh, and all that sits on a basis of a system that, that is very solid. So right? was it a design principle for you to make it, um, to, to push it into the freedom direction when you started with Apocrypha? Yeah, had to because uh, we wanted to do so much, and so uh, we needed something that just just really could ha could handle itself, whatever direction it was tugged on. It had to be able to respond very elastically, and so um, it it does. I mean, like that's the the value, right? I mean, Pathfinder is sort of like that. And I think in our new iteration of Pathfinder, it's more like that. Um, but I think in the case of Apocrypha, we pushed it as far as it could possibly go. Maybe a lot of our listeners um, have not played Apocrypha. Mm, sure. Can you, can you tell a little bit more about the, about the game and the mechanics you use to create this kind of freedom? Sure. So Apocrypha is a game set in the modern day. And by that, I mean it's set on the day you play it. There's an app on your phone that modifies it every day of the year. And so, uh, you know, you just pull it up and find out what's actually going on in the world and it changes the game for you. Um, which is fun in its own right. Uh, it's kind of a gimmick, but it's cool. Um, the, uh, the nature of the gameplay is, uh, similar to Pathfinder in some ways. I mean, you have a character and you have a deck of cards and you go around poking in locations and things pop out at you and you have to deal with them. Um, where it diverges is that it's not a linear path game uh in the sense that a that pathfinder is pathfinder says you're starting at level one and you'll have to get to level 20 and then you will go through these scenarios in the order i told you and don't you dare diverge um whereas uh apocrypha says you can go anywhere and do anything and it has to be able to handle that so in this world uh, of the modern day you can see you are a saint you can see all the monsters in the world The monsters can see you and they're not very happy with you. Um, they, some of them want to bring up about the apocalypse. You're not too keen on that idea. And so, um, you know, you have various places that you go, uh, currently in North America, although we have thoughts about what it would be like to do Europe the same way. Um, and, uh, you know, you deal with all the crazy stories that we've set in motion. Uh, the, the big sort of nature of the game is that 
you're essentially a superhero. You have lots of great powers, but you've forgotten all of them. And so over the course of the game, uh, over many games, you gain memories that, that allow you to take your character in very different ways. So all of a sudden you're a pyrokinetic now, or you're, you've got, you've got wings or whatever it is is necessary to, to, and you remember that. Um, now, how did you forget you have wings? Well, they just don't manifest when you're, when you've forgotten them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, uh, you know, there's this veil over the world that stops everybody from panicking whenever somebody starts to fly. And, uh, so, so you just sort of deal with, deal with all these supernatural threats, um, that are wildly different from chapter to chapter. Uh, there's, there's the street gangs of, uh, Chicago that all, uh, are, are lycanthropes that turn into whatever they wear as symbols on their jackets. Um, and then there's fairies that are biker gangs that go across the uh, Midwest in the wild hunt and uh, have <laughs> traveling circus that uh, basically a big EDM carnival that, uh, that drops into every town and, and every chapter is just so different from one another. Um, it's a big sprawling game um, that, uh, is in three boxes, uh, the flesh, oh, sorry, the world of flesh and the devil are the names of the boxes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been really good for us. Uh, it's definitely a game that can do whatever you want it to do. As I said, you can play it as either against the game or as a straight RPG. Um, the game will run itself the same way in either way. You can transition back and forth between the two modes as much as you want. So if you want to game master a session, great. And then you can switch back to, everybody working against the game in the next session with the same characters. Um, so that's the game. Well, the world, the world sounds incredible, and I, I definitely have some follow-up questions on the world building and storytelling because that sounds really awesome. Um, but first, let's start with, uh, with the companion app, maybe. Um, what exactly does the companion app do for the game? Well, the simplest thing it does is every day it tells you something interesting. Um, so it says today, uh, the subject is that, um, uh, the Mueller report is delivered to, to the attorney general and that's how this affects the game, right? Or, or the, there's a bomb cyclone in the Northeast and, uh, that's how this affects the game. Uh, so, and then you modify your game based on that. Um, the second thing it does is it allows you to sort your, Characters out, um, your, your, uh, groups, create groups with each other, track every card in the game. Um, it doesn't play the game for you in any way. Um, that's, that's not something we wanted to make. Um, but it just basically gives you a sense of, uh, you know, if I'm going to transition a character from game to game, I, I want to know what cards it has. So I, I can keep track of it that way. So it helps you tracking. So is it, is it required to play the game or is it optional? Not in any way. Totally okay. optional. So we have a we have a regular play group where we play Gloomhaven, mm-hmm. and we use the I think it's unofficial companion app for the game. Um, mm-hmm. the, the app dramatically reduces the effort for tracking life, uh, state effects, yeah. and the turn order, um, and therefore it reduces uh, the time we need to do all the bookkeeping. And uh, the game time all all together. That's uh, that's great for us because we our time is limited, and we want right. to play more and um, do less bookkeeping. Um, so, do you think this is uh, this is something companion apps uh, should be used used for more? Well, it's, it certainly can be useful if you have that necessity in your game. Um, our game doesn't have that kind of bookkeeping. That Gloomhaven does so, uh, so there isn't really a need for it during the game in any meaningful way. But prior to it, absolutely. So, what tasks do you think make the most sense um, to use in a companion app for? Well, it just depends on what you need the game to do, right? If you're going to track things over the course of the game, if everything's going to have status effects and things like that, then it's really useful to have. Uh, then it's like, okay, well, uh, keep this, you know, remember to modify your, your, all of your rules by five because of this all the time. Uh, uh, that can be quite useful. Um, but we, like I said, our game, this, this, this game doesn't need it, right? During the game. Um, our game kind of guns along in the middle, right? It's the setup and tear down that, that 
takes a long time. That brings me to something completely unrelated. <laughs> um, I talked to Kevin Riley, the designer of Eons End, Ooh. and um, he shared a design principle with us um, regarding his card designs. And the design principle he shared was that no card should affect the board um, while you're not directly interacting with the card. So this really means that there shouldn't be a state effect on a card that says um, all the other creatures gain plus one strength, for example. Do you have some kind of similar design um, mm. principles for your games as well? I wouldn't have used that one. Um, uh, I think it's totally reasonable to have status effects that affect the game over the course of the game. Um, but... Uh, I think so. I mean, I think that um, one of the ones I'm known for is the Afghanistan principle. Um, tell us more the, about that. <laughs> the, the Afghanistan principle is um, is, is a real-life problem, which is that uh, we, we will send games to soldiers in Afghanistan. And, uh, and what we realized is that they could not actually play things if they were required to have certain expansions. Uh, that were necessary. So the rule in the Afghanistan principle is any expansion can be played with the base game, but no expansion is necessary to play with any other expansion. And so, you know, that's a huge effect. Uh, it definitely has powerful effects on the game, the limiting effects on the game, but it's necessary because you could be thousands of miles away from the nearest game store. Mm. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, we have all sorts of rules like that. We have, um, A lot of them were sort of codified by Jonathan Tweet. So, for example, a thing must either be always the same or always different, right? And so that, that means that you can't name something twice. If it does a thing, it's always called that thing, and it's never called any other thing. Um, however, if you have many things, never call them by the same name, right? Um, so, you know, things like that. I, I think there's there's all sorts of rules that we put in but we break all of our rules at various points too i mean the you know the kobold guide is loaded with those those sort of simple declarative sentences that you know if you know them you, you will definitely break them at all times yeah that that's a great thing about card games um, that you can break your rules uh, on the card text i think that's that's maybe that's the, the, the number the number one thing i love about card games Yeah, it's, it's the, the golden rule of the games is the cards overrule the game. <laughs> yes. Um, you mentioned the Kobold. Uh, can you tell the audience a little bit more about it? It's a book that I put out with uh, many of my friends, including the aforementioned Richard Garfield, that uh, basically is everybody's take on how games should be designed in one way or another. Um, we're working on a second edition of it now. Uh, with more essays in it. Uh, but basically it's everybody's sort of, you know, boiled down way to approach being a game designer. And, uh, sometimes it's just one aspect like development or playtesting. Sometimes it's the whole philosophy of it. And, uh, you know, I think it's, they're great essays. I certainly couldn't have written all of them myself. And, uh, uh, I think that the, the new version will have even more cool voices in it, uh, when we finally get it done. So is there a timeline when it will be done? No. <laughs> Unfortunately not. Um, so please let me know once it is we will. Uh, available and um, yeah, I will tell my audience. I'm sure there are a lot of people waiting for it. I certainly know that um, uh, Wolfgang Bauer, who's as uh, the name indicates, uh, is also capable of having a discussion in German, um, <laughs> uh, would uh, we'll, we'll let everyone know when that, that day comes. Perfect. So let's get back to the um, to Apocrypha. Um, sure. Um, another aspect I think that separates the good adventure games from the really great ones is um, storytelling and world building, and that is something your games are, I think, very good at. Yeah. This is not only true for Pathfinder or Apocrypha, but also for the the Maze of Games puzzle novel, for example. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Me personally, I am a little overwhelmed by everything you need to take into account when you want to design a great story in a great world. So yes. how do you approach storytelling in your games? Well, um, our, we, we approach it very systematically. Gabby defined a term that has uh, sort of carried with us as we've made all of our, our games, which is called the serial killer wall. 
the serial killer wall. <laughs> that is, sounds a little bit strange, to be honest. Yes, <laughs> the um, is that scene in every detective movie when there's a you know the detective is looking at the wall and there's all these things on the wall that uh, are connected in some way and there's lines connecting them and so forth with a bunch of question marks written on the board and you know all that kind of stuff and like how does this all come together so we actually make that we actually do physically make a serial killer wall we go out and we, we put it out on pieces of paper and we try to figure out how it comes together and now we use somewhat digital tools to do the same thing but basically we we really do plot it out as if it's a multi-dimensional wall um, we were doing our uh, expansion for the game Detective uh, a few weeks ago, and um, sure, you know we just got out the whiteboard and just started drawing on it, uh, and uh, you know it got really messy after a while, but we we were able to build a, a, a compelling story that had all of the necessary checkpoints along the way to make a make a um, sense now the maze of games is something else entirely that that thing was uh uh that is a do not try this at home kind <laughs> of uh approach that that required gabby and i over many trips to the panera bread company um you know drawing out every step of it in multiple orders and saying what are we trying to do here over and over again um uh and that created document after document after document before we could put even one word down on paper. Um, that is overwhelming and, and sh it should be overwhelming. That's why we haven't, you know, done it too many times, but, um, but the general process of just sort of getting it all down is, is a step that, you know, has to be taken seriously. It's not, it's not just you, you just uncrack your fingers and start typing, right? I mean, you have to actually segment it out. You know, figure out what the beats are, go through it and, and get it right. And of course you're designing a nonlinear story, so that's even worse, right? You have to know which directions it goes, all the directions it can go. What happens when it goes into a very weird place and how does it get back out? Uh, it's a complicated process, but it's a good process. It's is, fun. Is there a difference when you, uh, so how you, do you approach it when you write a story or when you create a storyline for a game? So is, there a difference in the in the approach you take i mean not really uh i think it still hits a lot of the same beats um you just have to accept that it can go different directions in the middle right i mean you have to know that it's not always going to go the way you want it to do and you can't push it you have to say what happens when it goes different places um and create a lot of a lot of outlet valves uh but Yeah, I think it's pretty much the same as novel writing in some ways. It just involves a lot of people throwing good ideas out until you can weave it all together. So Apocrypha is a world you designed from scratch, didn't you? Yeah. And um, the Pathfinder... No, a lot of us. A lot of us did. I okay, shouldn't not, say not I only did. you. Okay, your team. Yes. Um, but the Pathfinder card game, on the other hand, um, yeah, you probably reused some, some of the Pathfinder universe. So could you des maybe describe the difference between designing a game completely from scratch and designing a game for an existing license? Oh, it's much harder to do it from scratch. <laughs> I believe <laughs> it is. Uh, it's much easier when somebody shows up with, you know... Uh, already written stories that, that all you have to do is adapt. It's fantastic. You should do that as much as possible. Um, we have the greatest library of fantastic adventures that we can always tap into when we make a Pathfinder thing. Um, we just did a thing for uh, the RPG day story where, where you know, uh, some goblins are out and they, they fight a giant chicken and it's fantastic, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's great to just constantly be presented with incredibly creative ideas from other people that you can, you can make work. Um, and, you know, there's a skill to actually making it work. But, uh, but it's also really fun to just make your own stuff up. I mean, one of the great things about working on our game, The Ninth World, was uh, that that game set a billion years in the future and nothing could be wrong. Right, because I mean, it's a billion years in the future. What could possibly anything could happen <laughs> a billion years from now, right? And so, and so, yeah, it's, it's it's really nice to be working in a space where anything you come up with is great. And Apocrypha was like that. Every time somebody came up with something, it was like, yeah, that's totally good. We can use that. 
Yeah, but it must be much harder in Apocrypha if it's a if it's happening on the very same day in the actual timeline. Yeah, that's a fun thing. I mean, like it's it's fun for us to be able to just change the game on the fly, and you know, I can type something into the the app and it'll be live tomorrow. That's and great. I think that's great. Yeah, that's a lot of fun. Um, but uh, but I mean, it's not very difficult. It's just a matter of being being aware of what's going on in the world and coming up with clever ideas to go along with it. Sometimes you just go, okay, I think this is what's going on in the world, and you you just come up with a mechanic that works. It's it's a lot of fun though. People should check it out. It's it's pretty great. The app's free, so there's no reason not to download it. Have you ever thought about opening it for for the community so that other people could add stuff? Well, we did that with Pathfinder, and it was good. Um, I would say that that was great. Um, I think it's uh, requires a willing participant in the. Um, so in our case, uh, that was drive through cards uh, that did that, and they did a really great job with it with Pathfinder. So, uh, so in the case of Pathfinder, we had, uh, drive-through cards, uh, made an incredible, uh, website that you can make your own cards on. We would love to get there at some point. Right now we have, uh, various things on our website that you can download. You can make your own fragments and, and so forth. Um, it's not as involved in what we did with drive-through cards, but we hope people use them. So what exactly was possible on drive-through cards? They could make, you can make your own cards. Like for, for Pathfinder. For Pathfinder. Uh, yeah, you can just go in and say, I want to make a, make a new ally and load up the art and the text and it looks like a Pathfinder card. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that sounds, sounds great. Um, how, how did the community make use of it? They have made so many creative things. Uh, they have made adventures. They have made, um, any number of the entire adventure paths, uh, with dozens and dozens of new cards. Uh, it's great. Uh, played some of them. They're fantastic. So um, there's um, something I currently work on at my game, and that is um, the progression system. Um, that is something I struggle a little bit with um, at the moment. Um, in RPGs, leveling a character is typically requires a lot of effort. It is an integral part of the of RPGs, which is always a lot of fun to develop your character, um, but it also requires a lot of paperwork as well. Often you have to browse through dozens of books and look through different tables of skills, spells, or feats. Um, and in addition to that, you have to um, do a lot of um, writing on your character sheet, for example. That requires a lot of time, and time is exactly what we want to re reduce in an adventure card game, as we talked about. Um, so how did you approach the um, progression system in your games? Because um, I heard from a lot of people that it is um, that they really like your approach in um, the Pathfinder card game, um, and I think it is very good as well. So maybe you can share that um, design process a little bit for for me and for our audience. Yeah, well, I mean that was that was the hard work, but I mean we 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 really wanted a game that always was progressing upward with Pathfinder and. Uh, And so, you know, it's, it's a matter of adjusting the power curve on both ends of the process. How fast are people going to accumulate cards and how fast is the game going to adapt to people accumulating cards? And if you hit that right, then you have a great gameplay experience. And if you hit it wrong, then it's not going to be very fun at all. And so, um, so we just worked really hard on that. Uh, I think the, The necessity is that people feel invested in the game, but don't overwhelm it. And, uh, you know, it always feels challenging. And uh, so you keep surprising them with new things that they didn't plan for. And then they have to adapt their strategies over and over again. And that, that sequence just repeats forever. Um, with Apocrypha, we don't know what you're going to play next. So we have to uh, have constant surprises that make you reassess what you did uh before because if it's strictly a power battle we will always lose because you can always just gain more power so we have to change everything all the time uh so in our case the instability is built into the game quite a bit in apocrypha um in you know and some games we some games we choose not to do that in some games like thornwatch and ninth world they don't have a game state change but in pathfinder and apocrypha the game state change is the game 
And, uh, so we need to, we need to make sure that it's, it's fun every time. And that is a, that's definitely a challenge. It's something you have to work very hard to get right. I played a game, um, which I really like. It's, um, the game Aventuria. Um, it's mm -hmm. an, also an adventure card game, um, in the Dark Eye universe. And, um, their progression system, as far as I remember, is that you, um, add a new card to your deck every now and then. I would, um, maybe one card per quest or even less. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's it. There's no more really real progression in the game. And for me, this was a little bit, um, a little bit too less. So I wanted to have more character development, um, developing through the, through the scenario by, um, adding stuff, um, into my deck or by changing them, them, them other values. Right. I mean, I think, I think there's actually, I think the thing with Aventuria, right, is that, uh, the Schwarzaga, um, it fits in that world. And so it makes some sense that it's, it's a lot more sloggy. I guess is the phrase I would use, right? Um, yeah. Then Pathfinder, which is constantly positive and constantly upward management, right? Yeah. Um, uh, I think that, um, you know, you just got to find the, the balance for your game. Uh, I think Aventuria hits it okay for itself, but um, uh, I think that the, uh, the really important thing is that it feels like it belongs, Yeah, that's, that's true. I don't, I really, I really liked, uh, Aventuria, but that was one part of the game which I thought could have been a little bit more, yeah, challenging for me as a player. To, I would have liked to have more decisions with my character development. Right, right. Yeah, I think that that's, I think that's a necessary thing for a lot of games is just feeling like you're invested. Yes. Um, and a lot of, Other games, um, especially legacy games, um, allow you to change things directly on the cards by writing on them or by putting stickers on them, as as it is done in Gloomhaven, yeah. for example. How, what is what is what do you think about that approach? By oh, that people change the cards directly. Oh, I think it's great. I mean, I think Rob Davio developed a brand new gameplay style that I think is is fantastic, and uh, I'm happy to have had a little bit of involvement along the way with that process. Um, Uh, I think what he's done with Betrayal Legacy is fantastic, for example. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a method. Um, it's a good method. And, uh, I think, you know, but I think if you're not Rob Davio, uh, really think twice about starting a legacy project because, uh, it's very complicated. It's very difficult to get right. And so, uh, um, which is why I think, um, you know, there've been many adventure card games, but there've been very few uh, legacy games because it's just really hard to do. It's really hard to manufacture. And, uh, so, but I, I love the approach. I think it's fantastic. So why, why do you think it's hard to, um, to manufacture because you need the, these stickers and the components or it's all surprises. Everything's a monster jumping out from behind you, right? And so you have to maintain that every time you have to shock people. And, uh, it's great. Like, if you can do it, if you can come up with new things that are great every time. I remember the experience of playing Seafall and, and noting that there were, um, uh, three AAA batteries needed. Uh, nothing on the box told me what it could possibly need AAA batteries for. I thought that was great. <laughs> There's only so many times you can pull that trick. Yes. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, you have to be just wildly inventive. It's so much harder. Um, and so I'm glad he has that particular niche and not me. So, um, yeah, you are not only a game designer, but you are also, yeah, a businessman. Um, so what do you think about the, the business model of adventure card games or maybe even living card games um, in which you release new content such as quests, or characters or items over time um, and then sell them as an, as an expansion? I think it's necessary for the system development. Um, if we were unable to do that, we would have to generate a brand new system every time and that would be very difficult. So we're very thrilled that people really like the, like our stuff enough to gain new content for it. Um, I think that, that it is on us to make consistently clever, uh, creative new content and to modify the game routinely as a, like every single product has to be wildly different 
and uh, it's it's worked out. I mean, that's one of the reasons we have such a large design team. It's because so many different ideas. A, a game by Gabby is different than a game by Keith, and uh, and that's a necessary thing. Otherwise, it wouldn't work. And so we we you know each set is different because of the people who take the lead on it. And that is reflected in the fact that people are very surprised by what we give them every time. So, what do you think is the the maybe the perfect amount of of content that should be in the base set then? Because I heard from from some people oh. that they were frustrated that let's say for example Aventuria, because I have this game right in front of me, I can see it right now, um, is that there only are two or three quests in the base in the base game. So, well, what is the sweet spot there? We're the wrong people to ask because we always put way too much stuff in our games. Yeah. Um, we, 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 we throw everything we can think of into the game. And so, um, yeah, we, we, we over deliver, I think, uh, sometimes. But, uh, I've never heard anybody say there's just not enough stuff in here, uh, when they're referring to Pathfinder or, or uh, um, Apocrypha, for example. Um, you know, in the case of Thornwatch, you know, one of the big, things that we did was limited by the fact that everything we did was beautifully illustrated with cartoons and there were just only so many of them we could do. And so I think people who came to that, you know, expecting 99 scenarios out of Apocrypha and seeing 24 scenarios and, you know, might have thought, oh, there's not as much in here, but there is, right? I mean, it just is a matter of uh, trying to make... Uh, trying to make as much content as we can. I certainly don't think anybody should use our stuff as a model. <laughs> we, we put way too much stuff in our, our, our games. Yeah, I, li I like the amount of stuff that you put in, into your games. Yeah. So please please continue to do so. <laughs> no, I get it. I'm just saying that I, I would not call that a minimum standard. So is there anything else that you would like to mention? Maybe a, a new project that's coming up, uh, a new Kickstarter um, campaign that is no, uh, coming up? We're, we're, Yeah, we're doing, we're doing a, right now we're doing a, a thing for a puzzle novel, The Maze of Games. We just opened up an escape room, uh, and, uh, we're sort of, uh, creating a, a, um, uh, the end of a, a thing where we're doing the, the answer book, which is something that is only possible because our book was solved for the first time in February, which was pretty great. Um, uh, we're working hard on our next big box game, which I can't quite reveal yet, but, um, Uh, is going to be really, really fun. Um, it's a sort of uh, in the same vein as Betrayal at House on the Hill, although it's not a sequel to Betrayal in any way. Um, and uh, so that's that's very exciting. We're very happy uh, that that project is moving forward at the speed it's moving forward. And um, you know, we're just doing lots of great stuff. We're, we're really enjoying our time that we have as a group and uh, just have a great team that uh, produces amazing material. And so um, as long as people will continue to support it, we'll keep making really good things. So I, I will keep supporting it. Uh, and I hope that you convince some people of my audience to support it as well. Well, I hope so. I hope <laughs> this is worthwhile. If you've made it this far, um, please find me on uh You know, on Twitter, on Mike Selinker or, or Facebook or whatever, I, I accept all comers. Come find me at a convention. I hope to make it over to Essen again soon. I've enjoyed my trips over there. Uh, and uh, I'm just thrilled to, to have a discussion, uh, you know, that, that crosses the continents like this one. It's always great, Marvin. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time and share all this valuable insights of your design process. You're most welcome. I hope your audience has enjoyed it too. Yeah, I, I'm sure they did. And I will link your contact details in the in the show notes so they can find your your company, your games and um and you. All right. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor. Wish you all the best for your upcoming designs. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Goodbye, Mike. Thank you. Bye now. And finally The conclusion. Wow, that was a great conversation, with the mic definitely being the more eloquent part of the conversation. I really enjoyed our part of the conversation where we talked about the mindset you need to have as a game designer. Mike told us that you shouldn't let other people's opinion define you at any moment. We need to develop a mindset that the games and the content we create are of value for others. 
you have to put your stuff out there and don't fear rejection from publishers or other players. There are worse things that could happen to you. Remember, game design rejection is not at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to get in contact with Mike, you can find all the links in the show notes. If you are into adventure card games, I strongly recommend to check out the games uh, of Mike and his team. They are beautifully designed and a great source of inspiration. If you want to get in touch with me and all the other game designers of the NerdLab community, please join the NerdLab community on the website. Link is also in the show notes. Um, and this week I'm going to share with all the community members the one thing Richard Garfield, designer of Magic the Gathering, RoboRally, Artifact or Keyforge um, and many other games, uh, wished he had known before he started his journey as a game designer. So, thank you very much for listening and until next week, keep climbing on the hierarchy of needs pyramid and nerd like a boss.